Georgia's DBHDD is warning all Georgians that half of all opioid deaths happen at home when people take an oxy or a perk with a glass of alcohol for stress or to sleep. Learn more about protecting families from opioid overdoses at opioidresponse.info. Welcome to Two-Way Street. We're going to talk today to Koki Roberts. You know her work as the distinguished longtime political analyst for National Public Radio and for ABC News. But in recent years, she's also become a best-selling author, telling stories about the women in American history who the history books all too often neglect. Six years ago, in Founding Mothers, Roberts documented the lives of the women who played active roles in the birth of the nation. Her new book brings the story forward. It's called Capital Dames, the Civil War, and the Women of Washington. In addition to telling the stories of the smart, colorful, and ambitious women who inhabited Washington during the Civil War years, Capital Dames also paints a vivid portrait of what life in Washington was like during the dire years of the war. Her writing makes clear that Roberts loves Washington, which isn't surprising. It's been her home since she was five years old. She's from a great Louisiana political family. Her father, Hale Boggs, moved the family to Washington after he was elected to Congress following World War II. He went on to serve 13 terms and became a giant in the U.S. House. After he died in a plane crash, Cokie's mother, Lindy Boggs, was elected to his seat and served in Congress for 17 years. Koki Roberts, thank you so much for being here for uh, Two-Way Street. Um, I've just finished reading your new book, Capital Dames, and it is a big, fat book with lots of really great stories. Thank in it. you. It is a big, fat history book. That's true. Uh, but it's I a, say that in a good way. No, I mean that in a good okay. way. <laughs> it's a fun, big, fat yeah. history book. Right. First of all, Capital Dames. I love that title. Thank you. I can't tell you how long it took me to come up with that title. And I had all of the family working on a title. And they were all very creative people. And nobody was coming up with a title. And uh, I was also very late in writing this book because a lot of things happened in the family. And so uh, the, my friend, uh, my editor at the publishing house, kept saying to me, I could keep them all at bay a little longer if you would just have a title. <laughs> and and I and she wanted Civil War and Washington and all that. So I kept playing with Washington and nothing was working. And finally I started playing with Capital and then it was perfect because of course it's a play on words. They're not just in the nation's capital, but they're first rate. But the other thing in addition to what you've said is the word dames is such a muscular, strong <laughs> word for women. I'm not sure that if I used that word... That you could get away with it? I could get away with it, but well, you can. Well, there was a conversation about that, too. And I felt that, first of all, we have the colonial dames, right? And there is nothing like a dame. And I just felt that it was a perfect word. In reading your book, I realized that many of the women you're talking about were strong, opinionated women no kidding. deeply involved in the politics of the day. These were not shrinking violets no. who sat back and um, Let decided to be to them, you know, right? timid, uh, subservient women, right? No, not even close. And 
Um, that's why they're interesting, and that's why they're fun to write about and read about. Uh, some of them were out even before the war, out there themselves, like Dorothea Dix, lobbying Congress in such a, a, a successful fashion that the Senate gave her an office in the Capitol. I mean, who knew, right? The first woman you really introduce us to is Dolly Madison, who came to Washington in 1801 with her husband, you know, James Madison, uh, President, uh, Secretary of State first, right? Right. Um, uh, be, well before he became president. But she became one of the most beloved figures in Washington. And powerful. Um, da- Daniel Webster has been quoted saying she she's the only permanent power in Washington. I'm not 100% sure he ever said that, but he said something apparently close enough. But um, she she was really the first lady for a half a century. And she she came, as you said, as this beautiful girl, uh, Virginian originally, but she had been in Philadelphia, as the wife of the Secretary of State. The president, uh, Thomas Jefferson, had no wife. Uh, so she was really the, the mover and shaker among the women of Washington, of whom there were very few. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was a brand new, pathetic little town. But it was a town where the politics was already getting vicious. And uh, the country was too young and too fragile to sustain that kind of partisanship and regionalism. And she was the force who made people come together and have some wine or some cider and <laughs> and behave. And, um, and she had these entertainments, which came to be called squeezes because they were so crowded. And at one point, actually, when Madison was president, uh, the Federalists, the opposition party, tried to boycott uh, because they were mad at the president, and they discovered they couldn't do that because every political deal, every all political information got exchanged there, so they couldn't be absent. You tell a marvelous story about her actions on the night that the British were marching on Washington. What did she do? Well, that's actually, you know, it's her famous story. She was in the White House. Uh, the president had gone out to Hagerstown, where the um, where the or Bladensburg, where the war was was waging, and uh, she expected him and his uh, generals to return cabinet. And she was on top of the White House with a spyglass, seeing the British approaching by herself. And she wrote about this to her sister in a, a lengthy letter. And um, and then people started screaming at her, you've got to go, you've got to go, the British are coming. And she packed up a lot of government papers and a few personal things, but insisted on staying until the portrait of General Washington was secured. And, you know, Bill, what that was about, you know how we've seen in recent years toppling Saddam's statue or Lenin's statue and all that? Well, this would have been the same idea. It would have been desecrating the father of the country and showing America, you think you're a country, but you're really not. And um, so she made sure that it was safe and and on its way out of town before she left town. And then uh, she came back, and then the British came in, and burned the Capitol and then marched to the White House where she had prepared a meal. And they all sat down and ate her food <laughs> and then burned the White House. So it was like Goldilocks, you know. So she uh, came back a couple of days later, heartbroken to this uh, burned out and also flooded. There had been a big storm city. 
and lobbied um, endlessly with the Congress to keep the Capitol there because Mm -hmm. Philadelphia was making a new claim, and everybody thought that they would just give up this idea of this silly city of Washington. You say that when she died in 1849, everyone wondered who would define the city next. She was that important a figure. She was. She was. Every foreign head of state came to see her, uh, presidents, presidents' wives. Uh, she, there were coins with her face on them. Uh, she, um, she had her own seat in the House of Representatives. Uh, she sent the first telegraph. I mean, she was somebody. Could we read something about, uh, from the book? Sure. I have a few things that I'd love okay, to great. see you read. But um, So there were all of these women Right. who were whirling around, swirling around right. Washington in their little uh, social circles, planning parties. Right. Uh, but so, the parties, of course, were all political well, events. Well, exactly. Designed to, pr- to promote the men. Supporting their men, right. fiercely working on their right. behalf. You have a great description of what those women Looked like. Can you? Who this was actually, it who wrote this? Is, this this is a this is a quotation from a book by Sarah Agnes Pryor. Her husband had been in Congress from Virginia. Then he was in the Confederate. He was an officer in the Confederate Army, and then he remarkably moved to New York and went to the Supreme Court. But she became a a well noted writer and social uh, service organizer. But in one of her books, she wrote. The bell in the 50s lived in an expansive time. Ladies wore enormous hoops, and because their heads looked like small handles to huge bells, they widened the coiffure into broad bandeau and braids, loaded it with garlands of flowers, and enlarged it by means of a wide headdress of tulle, lace, and feathers, or crowned it with a coal scuttle bonnet tied under the chin with wide ribbons. In this guise, they sailed fearlessly about. I loved that, too. I'm so glad you did. Koki, I suspect that is not the way you are going to dress for the White House correspondence. Well, I don't go to the White House correspondence, but there was a time in my life, you know, there was a time in the um, 1950s, see, just 100 years later, when all of us uh, girls were wearing crinolines and hoops, so these things come back. Well, I do want to talk <laughs> a little bit about your uh, your life in, in a little while, but um, but, I, but let's dig into the book just a bit more, if we could. One of the most it. interesting characters in the book, and and has a, who has a real through line and is involved in so much history in the 19th century, Jessie Benton Fremont. Who was she? <laughs> Isn't she fascinating? She was the daughter of Thomas Hart Benton, who was a senator from Missouri for decades. And she, as a child, played in the Andrew Jackson White House. And she was always interested in politics, and her father would bring her with her places. And and she then eloped with the swashbuckling explorer John C. Fremont, much to her parents' dismay. And uh, Fremont uh, kept exploring the West, and, and then he actually explored as far as California. 
and she went to join him there. Now, you say that, you know, she went to join him in California. Mm -hmm. Well, joining him in California was extraordinary. And she had to sail from New York to the Panama uh, Isthmus and then cross the Isthmus. Of course, there was no canal. And then go up the coast to to San Francisco. And it so happened that the year was 1849. The the gold had not been found when this was planned. By the time she got on the ship, gold had been found. And so there she is with a six-year-old child. She, it's an, it's an extraordinary trip across the isthmus. Every, everybody gets sick. It's dangerous, all of that. And she was a personage, so she was well-treated, but even so, it was dangerous. And at one point, she was served a baked monkey, and she said it looked like nothing so much as a charred child. Yeah. But they they couldn't get to San Francisco because every time a ship would get to San Francisco, the crew would jump ship and go look for gold. Mm-hmm. So finally, a ship came and collected them, took them up to San Francisco, which was this tiny town. She wrote later that it only had like four or five substantial houses. And uh, then it becomes a state the next year, and John Fremont's one of the first senators, one of the two. And so back to Washington they go, which she loved. And he became a noted politician, and then the Republican Party is established. And he becomes the first Republican presidential nominee in 1856. And while they were waiting for the convention to nominate him, they were living in New York, and she wrote, my neighbors see a precedentist among them. <laughs> and she said, and just to convince them it's true, I wear purple. <laughs> but um, but so then he gets the nomination, and she is absolutely front and center. She becomes essentially, you write, the first wife to become actively involved in her husband's And not behind campaign. the scenes. They, right. were, they were behind the scenes before that. Sure. She was on the stage, and the posters were Je- were Fremont and our Jesse. I mean, the vice president, forget him. And um, at one point, the Democrat and the Republican papers would say, she explains the platform better than anybody. She's got more sense than anybody, all of that. And... Um, one Democratic paper got so fed up with all this that it wrote a, a piece saying that the poster should say, for president, and then in teeny letters, John C. Fremont, husband of Jesse Benton. Uh, but she, uh, children were named after her. It was really, she was quite something. We should say a couple of things here, I think. First of all, John Fremont, who was known as the Pathfinder right. from his adventuring days, right. um, was... Unreliable. Unreliable at best. <laughs> sort of a raconteur. Uh, you never knew quite what to make of this guy. He, he is, his reputation and his uh, belief in himself uh, seemed to uh, Exceed be, be far, his, out, right. far away who he really right. was. So his president, his, his candidacy, there's always some questions about what kind of stature he'd have. But in he, fact, her father campaigned for his opponent. Well, and that is remarkable, that Senator Benton, was working for James Buchanan. James Buchanan. Can you even begin to imagine <laughs> in modern politics? Oh my! It gosh. was it was shocking, and she was hurt. But um, but Benton felt, and of course he was correct at the time, that the Republican Party was just this upstart regional party, and uh, that the country was on the verge of falling apart, and you needed a, a candidate who could. Uh, 
could succeed in, in both regions. Now, unfortunately, that candidate was James Buchanan, yeah. and he was a, a total failure, but he was president. The Fremont uh, story, and we, it goes on. Look, people yeah. should read the book, <laughs> but later she crosses swords with President Absolutely. Lincoln so over then her Fremont, husband's right. work in Missouri. For, so then the war starts, right? And Fremont is a general. And with the help of Blair and Benton, he becomes a general. And he's in Missouri, which is her home state. And uh, she's running everything. She's called General Jesse. It's not meant as a compliment at this point. And he is so incompetent that he keeps trying to do things to sort of uh, promote himself. And he he signs an Emancipation Proclamation, but well before President Lincoln was Freeing the slaves free, of Missouri freeing with the no slaves consultation of, with the president. Right, freeing the slaves of the people who were fighting for the Confederacy right. in right. Missouri. Right. And so with no consultation, the president is horrified because he's afraid Missouri will then leave the Union and, um, and you know, uh, reprimands Fremont. And Jesse Fremont gets on a train from Missouri, now we're talking about, you know, 1861 or two, and comes to Washington and and berates the president. Mm-hmm. And and he and that was one of the things also, Bill, that I couldn't get over. These women had such access. They were in and out of the White House all the time, regardless of whom was president, and and giving presidents pieces of their minds. And he, she, you know, is furious with the president. He's having none of it. He doesn't like her a bit either. And they end up fighting it out in the newspapers with both of them leaking stories to the newspapers. It's just remarkable. Um, Fremont eventually, you know, has to give in. He's not the president and has a very unsuccessful time in the during the war. But But they turn it to their advantage coming to New York and getting very involved with the abolitionist movement so that he appears to be the the hero of the abolitionists and a challenge to Lincoln. At a time when Lincoln is still very concerned about allowing slavery to become an issue in the war. Because Lincoln is very concerned that the border states, Missouri, Kentucky, Tennessee, Maryland— uh, are going to leave. Tennessee did leave the Union. Yeah. He needs to keep the others in the Union, desperately needs, particularly Maryland. It's on. It's right there with yeah. Washington. So before we leave that part of the story, uh, just one note about the frosty relationship between the two. When she arrives in Washington to uh, uh, confront the president, she sends a note to him uh, saying, asking when it will be convenient for him to uh, uh, receive, receive her. her, and she gets a very she gets a note back from him that a, says, "Now, a Lincoln." <laughs> That's a wonderful <laughs> little touch. <you> know? <laughs> My guest today is Koki Roberts. Her new book is called "Capital Dames: The Civil War and the Women of Washington." We'll have more with Koki Roberts in a moment. Welcome back to Two-Way Street. My guest today is Koki Roberts. 
She's the author of Capital Dames, The Civil War, and The Women of Washington. You also know her as a distinguished political correspondent for National Public Radio and for ABC News. You have some really wonderful set pieces, I think of them as, in this book. And one of the most touching for me is when all the women gather in the gallery of the Senate. Oh, isn't that something? To watch the The men men who are seceding from the Union give their farewell speeches. That must have been an I get goosebumps with you just descri- saying those words, you know, because because they loved the country. And uh, their husbands, and in many cases their fathers, had served the country. And, um, and they certainly knew uh, intimately the founding stories that had been their grandfathers. You know, these were, these were patriots. Uh, and, and to see at their husbands' hands the country falling apart uh, was was very painful and they were they were on their husband's sides kinda mm. uh, pretty much but they were not sure that their husbands were wise what's interesting is that uh, while the men certainly went their separate ways and fought for one side or the other uh, the women were able to stay in touch across Confederate and Union uh, divides. They right? cared about each other. They were friends. They loved each other, and um, and they they were very uh, eager to get information about each other. The mail service stopped, but um, they would get messages from the people who were not directly involved, who were traveling. Often, of servants were often the sources of information, um, but the. Uh, the women really did not want to lose their friendships, um, which didn't surprise me, by the way. You know, I mean, women are close friends and yeah. wanted to stay close friends. Yeah, that, that does make sense to me. Lincoln becomes president. The war begins. Mary Todd Lincoln becomes first lady. There are certain people in life, <laughs> if you agree with this, who seem to be born under a cloud, whose lives never quite go the way they, we'd all want our lives to go. And Mary Todd Lincoln really is one of those poor souls, isn't I she? I think that's probably that's a good way of describing her um, because it's true. Her mother died when she was young. She was never fond of her stepmother. Um, she went to live with a sister in Springfield, Illinois, and that was always somewhat tense. She was a pretty young girl and, and smart and uh, charming when she wanted to be. And, and so she was courted. And um, in fact, one of her one of her suitors uh, was Stephen Douglas, who of course ended up running against her husband for the Senate and for president. But um, but she saw in Abe Lincoln uh, a smart person whom she could mold, and she was always determined to marry a president. And so she she had set her sights, as they say set her cap. But um, <laughs> but she then married him, and she lost a child very soon when he was about two years old. But, you know, Bill, that was so common. Now, I'm not saying that it made it any less painful. It was incredibly painful, but it was also very common. It, it's, you would, as you look at her life, you, you have to believe that were it diagnosed today, she would have been bipolar. manic depressive. Bipolar, right. Yeah. Exactly. Or bipolar, yeah, okay. Yeah, right. okay. And, so, and so, yes, she had these um, these fits of, of tremendous 
uh, ability to get things done, uh, and then moments of terrible depression, and and moments where she flew off the handle and and said everything she believed and and offended many. But people. she was never really accepted Washington by the dames no. of Washington. They no. considered her uncouth. They thought she was a coarse Westerner, yeah. which was unfair because she was actually a well-bred Kentucky woman and and cousins of a bunch of them. And had she come to Washington with a different husband, she probably would have been well accepted. But you know, this was Abraham Lincoln's election as a Republican, what, what the opponents called a black Republican, mm-hmm. was the uh, the cause of the secession. You know? And so... Uh, she was totally uh, rejected, and then her burst of ten- temper added to that. Uh, so she, she was she had a very hard time uh, being accepted by the one of her of chief uh, nemeses uh, was uh, Kate Chase. Who was Kate Chase? Kate Chase was the daughter of Salmon P. Chase, who was uh, Lincoln's Secretary of the Treasury. He had been in Congress from Ohio and had been governor of Ohio. And she, uh, her, he was very unlucky in wives. His wives all died, and um, including her mother and stepmother. So she was um, really his hostess and and campaign manager from the time she was a young girl. And people would go to the governor's mansion in Ohio and talk about, oh, wow, this is a brilliant, beautiful uh, child that he has there. And she started managing, running him for president uh, when she was a teenager. And and when he then lost for president to Lincoln in the at the convention, and she came to Washington as the daughter of the Secretary of the Treasury, she was furious. She felt that she belonged in the White House, and she did set up a whole separate salon at the Treasury Secretary's house. And she was written about in all of the newspapers as a great belle and a great, a brilliant uh, stat, um, tactician. And, Bill, that was the other thing that so amazed me. The newspapers wrote about all of these women. And, and I'm thrilled to tell you that you can now read all of these newspapers online uh, from the early 19th century on. I mean, you can waste so much time <laughs> reading the newspaper because there's so much fun, right? You know, all the ads are there, everything. And, you know, I was raised in the, in the 1950s as, you know, a proper woman was only in the paper when she was born, married, and died. <laughs> and, um, and these women were in the papers all the time. Yeah, you, you uh, point out that in those days, uh, that was one of the professions that was totally, thoroughly acceptable for right. a woman to take on was to be a reporter. One of the women uh, who you quote from is uh, Mary Jane Windle. <laughs> she South Carolina. She's terrific. And, in fact, <laughs> we're going to um, find some of her... Uh, articles and post them on uh, oh, the good. Two-Way Street she, Facebook page. She, she, but you she, know what? As long as you have the book in yeah. front of it, if you don't mind, right. the, I, I thought on page 26. Okay, this is, I've got it right in front of me. There's, right. The change produced? That's one of my favorite yeah. quotations. So she's writing mainly for people in Charleston, South Carolina, and she's looking down from the gallery of the Capitol and seeing what's going on below her, and she says that the change produced in the tone of an ordinary man by the letters H-O-N, honorable, preceding his name, is unmistakable. Here he is a public man, and everybody is his most obedient servant. 
And it's so true. You know, it's still so true. But people don't generally say the truth like that, so so frankly. So I would love to do take one more story. Sure. Um, and that's Jefferson Davis and his wife. Verena, is that Verena. how you pronounce her name? Verena Davis is one of the great ladies in this book. Apparently brilliant. Yes. Is that right? Yes. Tell us about her. So she was a teenager, and they were all teenagers, you know, when they married in Natchez. And um, he was an older man. He had been married very briefly to Zachary Taylor's daughter. And um, and he married her, and he went to Washington in, in the Senate. And she, as a teenager, was a Washington wife. But at that point, they lived in a boarding house, which was much easier. And... Um, uh, she thoroughly enjoyed her time in Washington and helped him with his speeches and his letters and all of that. But then uh, they went back to Mississippi and uh, he he went into the Mexican War and was something of a hero. And then uh, they went back to Washington. He was uh, Franklin Pierce's Secretary of War. And so now she's a real personage, a cabinet wife, and uh, she is the chief entertainer in Washington. And um, they, the two of them, uh, Jefferson and Verena, have a tense relationship. He's always trying to get her to be the little woman, the obedient little woman. <laughs> and she's always uh, chafing against it and uh, declaring her independence and all of that. But but that works against her because anytime she does that, he bans her to Mississippi and she wants to be in Washington. So she, you know, accommodates as much as she can. But she is in Washington uh, seeing the whole scene and and writing home to her parents these wonderfully frank letters. And um, after the 1856 election, one of the Bells uh, who was in the competition, who they all loved, was Adele Cutts. And yes. she was—she had no— um, she had no man to make her uh, prominent, but she was Dolly Madison's great niece, and she was smart, and she was beautiful, and she was kind, and people loved her. And after the um, election, she married Stephen Douglas, and uh, Verena was furious. She just thought that was the worst thing she could imagine, and she wrote to her mother and said, this wonderful woman... Uh, has married a trickster uh, who is you know, a drunk, and he's got he's got money from his first wife's marriage, and um, and he he gets this great woman just because um, she's poor and her father is proud, and then she says, but fortunately, a new. Um, water system is coming to Washington, so maybe he will wash more often, uh, which is a good thing because otherwise he will offend his wife's all factories. So, you know, we don't learn from the men that um, that Stephen Douglas smelled bad. Um, but Verena was very frank and feisty and funny. The uh, And, of course, she ends up being the um, first lady of the Confederacy. First lady of the Confederacy. Um, there's, a, there's another uh, set piece, uh, again, I call it that, in the book, and that's as the war comes to an end. Jefferson Davis has an opportunity to be re reunited with her briefly. They've been apart. And you write about how they um, find a moment to come together. And apparently he's being Chased. followed. Yeah, he's, 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 
there's an arrest warrant out for him. Well, but but apparently the spies are following his movements, I right. assume, because they track him to the location right. of well, this. They, so by now, Andrew Johnson is president, and um, he, uh, with uh, under the instigation of Secretary of War Edwin Stanton, uh, charges Jefferson Davis and uh, Alabama Senator Clement Clay uh, with uh, participation in the conspiracy to assassinate Lincoln. And he uh, offers $100,000. This is 1865. $100,000 reward for the capture of Jefferson Davis. And uh, Davis is trying to escape, and, and Verena had already been on the run with the four children. And um, he meets up with her on a riverbank. And uh, and then the soldiers arrive, and there's still a lot of dispute about whether he was dressed as a woman or not. Yeah, she and, defends him. Right. She says he was covering himself to go to the river. Right. So, so, this was not a funny moment no, to the Confederacy or to Jefferson or Verena but Davis. But right. there is so, a newspaper account right. that you have in your book that is so, absolutely hilarious. So uh, it's a New York Herald account, and so uh, the— Newspaper writes, there appeared at the tent door an ostensible old lady with a bucket on her arm, escorted by Mrs. Davis and her son. Please let my old mother go to the spring (laughs) for some water to wash in, said Mrs. Davis in a pleading tone. It strikes me your mother wears very big boots, said the guard as he hoisted the old lady's dress with his saber and discovered a pair of number 13 calfskins. And whiskers, too, said the sergeant as he pulled the hand from her face. And lo, Jeff Davis, in all his littleness, stood before them. So that that image was in newspapers as a cartoon all over the country. And she forever said, no, 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 that was not true. But she then he did go to jail for a couple of years. And she worked tirelessly to get him out of jail. Finally, he dies. And she decides um, to first of all, she has to make a living. They don't have any money. And she decides to move to New York, where she's been offered a job as a journalist with the New York world. And the Confederacy goes crazy, the former Confederacy, the first lady of the Confederacy going to New York. It's it's shameful. It's terrible. She had always been uh, somewhat olive-complected, not quite fair-skinned enough for a a true Southern belle. And so when she was moving to New York, she wrote to her daughter and said, I am free, brown, and 64. I can go wherever I want to go. But then she got there, and not only was she a journalist, she she ran a a very well-loved salon because she was such a brilliant conversationalist. But she befriended Julia Grant, Ulysses Grant's wife. And it was page one news all over the papers when their meeting happened. And then she went to the dedication of the Grant Memorial. And she did it very consciously as an act of reconciliation, of bringing the country back together. That is one of so many marvelous stories in this book. And and I I appreciate your... um, Talking about the handful of them, I could have picked 10 others. They were all great. Um, could I move the story sure. forward and talk a little bit more with you about your life? Here's something you said in 2007. I was covering the State of the Union, and I was standing in Statuary Hall, and there was a new shot, a new camera angle that we'd never used before. And it was down the center aisle right at knee height. 
And I had this incredible qualm because it all just came rushing back. That was my earliest memory of the chamber, and there it was at the right height for me to see it. But I still have moments in the Capitol where I will turn a corner and something will just come rushing back. It's true. Yeah. It's you, true. When, when your father was elected to Congress the second time, your father, the great Hale Boggs, who, of course, went on to become majority leader, served 13 terms, I think, something like that. in the U.S. House, was on the Warren Commission. When he was reelected, he was elected in 41. 40. He was 40. elected in 40 and defeated <clears throat> in 42, went and, into the Navy for the war, and then was reelected in 46. So at that point, um, you were a tiny little baby. I was a baby. <laughs> okay. Right. But the family moved to Washington? We, so they had moved. So we used to live in Washington during the session and in New Orleans uh, when Congress was not in session. So here's why I asked about where you lived. <laughs> There are people who believe that even before the impeachment of President Clinton, as the dialogue became coarser in Washington, as partisanship began to uh, become a bigger issue, there are people who would say that one of the problems is that members of Congress, especially in the House, don't live in Washington anymore. They don't go home to their wives, to their families, their husbands, where they can have a a real life. life. Do you buy into that? Yes, I do buy way? into it. But I don't buy into it so much in terms of their own uh, relationships with their families. I buy into it in terms of their relationships with each other. So uh, when we were growing up, members of Congress were in Washington. And so uh, we would see each other at church or the moms at the PTA or at school or, you know, at the circus or whatever. Normal, normal life. And um, my one of my best friends growing up was Libby Miller, who's she's still a good friend, whose father, Bill Miller, mm. was um, in con a Republican congressman from New York. He became head of the Republican National Committee and then was uh, Barry Goldwater's running vice mate. President, for vice president. Vice yeah. president. And that was just totally normal. Um, Bill, you know, I, I think I told you this. I had the wonderful honor, the daunting honor, of being asked by Betty Ford to be one of her eulogists. And, and, and I always joke that it would have scared me to death, except she told me exactly what she wanted me to say. <laughs> and that was to talk about the time when we were all together and we were all such friends. I mean, Jerry Ford was the Republican leader of the House when my father was the Democratic leader of the House. Mm -hmm. And they were partisan and they disagreed and they were best friends. Mm -hmm. And that was a very different time. And it did make a difference that we were all there together. Now, it also made a difference that they had all fought in World War II and that they uh, literally, those men who came to Congress in the post-war period had literally been in the trenches together. So that to just put a bring this around full circle, today, typically a member of Congress flies home maybe Thursday night. They don't want to vote. They certainly don't want to take votes on Friday no, if they can right. avoid it So because they, they want to be on an airplane back home. Uh, they maybe come back Monday afternoon. Or Tuesday uh, they're morning. They're living in their own districts, and so there is. Or, and no, then, and when they're in Washington, a bunch of them are living in their offices. In their offices, which is just disgusting. Showering at the congressional it's really, gym. It's really just yucky. And frankly, as a taxpayer, I don't want to pay for them to be living in their offices. <laughs>
you write in your book about these remarkable women who exerted enormous influence and power, but only behind the scenes. So what about women in Washington today? When I was growing up, the, the women were supporting their husbands, uh, but they were also very much on the scene. And um, uh, it's really what got me started writing these women's histories, was seeing, was growing up with my mother and Mrs. Ford and Mrs. Johnson and all of them running everything. And um, and I, I knew how influential and powerful they were. Now there's this interesting combination of women who are wives and women who are elected officials. And I can make the case that some of the women who are wives are more important than the women who are elected officials. And some of it, some of it has to do with the relative power of the men. I mean, the first lady is more powerful than a female secretary of state. And that has to do with the president being the most powerful person and the first lady having the ear of the president in a way that no one else does. But my mother, who was in both roles, would certainly be the first to say that she would like to see a woman in the position, person who holds the title, even though there were times when she thought she had more influence behind the scenes. But if you're actually in the room where the decision is being made, you can uh, affect the outcome even more directly. Yeah. Well, Koki Roberts, you've been very generous with your time. Oh, Bill, thank you so much for having me. It's so much fun to talk about all of this. Koki Roberts joined us to talk about her own life in Washington and about her new book, Capital Dames, The Civil War and the Women of Washington. You're listening to Two-Way Street. 